Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacy Toth of PaleoParents.com. You might also know me as the broth lady or the inventor of the hashtag more vegetables than a vegetarian. I'm the co-author of several paleo cookbooks, including Eat Like a Dinosaur, Beyond Bacon, Real Life Paleo. I like to talk about health at any size and self-love and personal acceptance. Specifically, I have a love for lifting heavy things. If you're interested in finding more out about that, you can also find me on Strong Woman Radio. And I'm Dr. Sarah Valentine of thepaleomom.com. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Approach and The Paleo Approach Cookbook. I'm passionate about nutrient density and the intersection of diet and lifestyle with health. Which really means I just love talking about science. News and views, where Sarah and I catch up and you get to listen to our gossip. doodly neighborino that's really intense that was that was a callback to the 90s or 80s just happened you've been watching too much full house what no it's from the simpsons okay um i just got (laughs) really overwhelmed with your energy and now i'm a little bit afraid um so you know what's amazing is that I feel so like I still feel like I'm not 100% healthy, but I have so much more energy than I've had the last couple of weeks that I like it's one of those things that I didn't realize how sick I was until I started feeling good. And I'm like, oh, man, was I low? Like I had no idea. And so, yes, now I'm a little energizer, Bunny, and you're going to have to deal with it for like an hour. It's just going to be a thing and you're going to be fine. I'm going to totally be fine. That is true. And I'm you know, I'm not close enough to physically hug you. Oh, goodness. So, <laughs> so I think that's uh, being thankful for the small things, right? Yep. That's right? what that something, is. Something? Yep. Hey, I have something really super important to tell you. Okie dokie. Disney came out with a new movie that totally flew under the radar that focuses on a sloth, and they now have Build-A-Bear sloths that hang off your arm that you can stuff yourselves. And how many of these do you own now? Zero, which is really what? unfortunate. I know I took the the big, um, sorry, the little boys saved up their money so that they could buy Pokemon Build-A-Bears. And every single mom of boys who's listening right now, or maybe your girls play Pokemon too, is like, oh my gosh, please do not tell my children that they have Pokemon stuffed animals at the Build-A-Bear workshop because then I will lose all of my money. That's what happened but my kids saved up their own money. So I took them in to get their Pokemons and there was a sloth, Sarah. And I was like, I mean, do to what degree of inappropriate would it be if I got my own stuffed animal? Cause I was genuinely tempted. Zero, zero degrees of inappropriateness. <sighs> Who says stuffed animals are for kids? Me. I say it. I still have my teddy bears. Well, I didn't buy a new one, I'll tell you that, but I really thought about it because you know how I feel I, about sloths. I do know how you feel about sloths, and I am shocked and dismayed that you did not partake in the building of a Build-A-Bear sloth. <laughs> Have you been? 
um, energetic. Obviously. Established. Um, and I'm getting ready for the Nutritional Therapy Association annual conference, which is this weekend. So by the time this podcast airs, I'll be in Portland, Oregon. Um, and so if you are in the area, I am giving a talk Friday morning and I'm on a panel discussion Friday afternoon. And then I'm just going to be hanging around the conference on Saturday. Um, so I'm really excited because that is such a great group of people. I walk around and I feel like I'm a rock star. So there's a little, there's a little bit of that. Um, but for me, it's such an amazing opportunity to have, um, these sort of high level discussions about, you know, the science behind various aspects of health to people who are like what I think of as the boots on the ground, right? So I'm talking to nutritional therapists who are the people who are working one-on-one -on -one with people to help people regain their health. And so I really cherish the opportunity to connect with these people and share with them the science that I'm reading and some of the stuff that I'm really passionate about. I'm going to be talking about sleep um, this year. Uh, everybody knows, I think by now that I have, um, taken up the banner of trying to encourage people to sleep more. And can I tell you, it's been a really interesting experience. So I wrote the online program, go to bed and people can learn more about, about that on my website at the forward slash go to bed. Um, and it's had such like tremendous, um, feedback. People are loving it. Like it's, it's, been a resounding success, but it's really interesting because when I engage in this conversation publicly about the importance of sleep, I get this, like this, there's this people want to be healthy and not sleep, right? Like everyone wants that. That's what people want. They want to not need it. They want to figure out how to have all of the fun other things in life and not need sleep. And so when I start talking about why we need sleep, how much sleep we need, how huge of a negative health impact shortchanging ourselves on sleep, just a small amount can actually create, right? It's actually um, increases risk of disease more than being obese does just to get six hours of sleep every night. And so I think that, you know, as I start to talk about these things, um, what I, I see is there's, right, there's the, there's some people get really engaged and then other people just, we feel so powerless to get more sleep. So we're just like, throw our hands up in the air. Well, it's not like it's something I have control over. And I really am trying to increase the discourse around that because I want people to really look at, um, look at their lives and really think about that rather than dismissing the idea rather than saying, well, there's, there's nothing I can do to get more sleep because of A, B, or C, whether it's a, you know, I've got a baby at home or, um, you know, I just get, I, I work really late or, or, you know, whatever, whatever these, there's a lot of different, right. A lot of different societally imposed type reasons that we put other things before sleep. But I really want to encourage people to kind of take a step back and really look, um, in 1965, on average, we got about an hour and a half more sleep every night than we do now. Um, and yes, there's been a lot of sh shifts in society and culture in the last 50 years. Um, but I think we can look back at, you know, it wasn't that long ago that everyone was sleeping more. So what's changed? When you look at 
some of the really interesting analyses of how people are spending their time. We're certainly working more than we ever have before, but we're also socializing more and we're spending more time in front of screens. And I think that as we start to reevaluate our priorities, if health is on the, you know, the, the goal list, then figuring out how we can take a step backwards towards more sleep, I think, is a really important exercise. And so for me, it's going to be really fun to bring that message. I'm going to be talking about a lot more of the detailed science behind the links between um, inadequate sleep and autoimmune disease. Um, but um, for me, it's really it's really interesting to be able to and fun and uh, exciting to be able to bring that message to people who are working with clients so that they can integrate a focus on sleep into their programs when they're also working on, you know, nutrient density and dealing with nutrient deficiencies and gut health and, you know, all of these other really critical inputs to health as well. So I am excited. And if you're there and you heard this, say hi to me. I don't bite. Um, I hug. There's that. So if you aren't a hugger, just Frankly, I'm something. more afraid of that than the biting. Really? Just biting kidding. hurts. <laughs> hugging is just uncomfortable for people like who don't like hugs. Um, no, I mean, I, I don't force hugs on anybody. So if you're not a hugger, you don't have to hug me. Um, but I would love to meet you. And um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not looking forward to traveling across the country, though. I feel like I just, I just started feeling good. Do not want to hop on an airplane all day. But um, I'm hoping I have, I've tried to set things up so that I can get lots of sleep and sleep in and get good food there. So, um, I mean, it's easy to get good food in Portland. Um, so, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that I will be able to do this trip and, uh, be okay on the other side. So there's that whole, that whole fun. Well, I'll check in next week and let you know how it went. Got my fingers crossed for you. So I'm also really excited about the topic that we have for today's show, because this show has been outlined for, like, I want to say a few months as an on the to-do list, like, we'll get to it. But it's been one of the ones that required uh, me to have a more than usual amount of time to prepare for answering some of these questions. And, um, and so it was just one of those ones that, especially with, you know, when I wasn't feeling well, that it just didn't uh didn't make it up on the priority list but um i uh i did some research found some answers made sure i understood some stuff um and we're actually going to finally tackle uh a, the topic of genetic predisposition for disease um and i think this is something that i certainly get a lot of questions on i think it's something that um people find the ideas very confusing and uh, we're going to we're going to talk about it. You are getting so geeky about just the idea of jumping in. So I think we should probably get started. Next segment is Science with Sarah, where I take a moment to explain the details and the whys. For Science with Sarah, when we're going to be talking about genetic predisposition, I think it's really important to differentiate between 
genetics and epigenetics. So the term epigenetics has really only been around for a few years. Um, I mean, it was used, it's been used to, to talk about a lot of different phenomenon. Um, but really what it comes down to is we each have this uh, DNA map that we inherit from our parents. We each have our own unique DNA unless we have an identical twin. And the DNA is, uh, it's basically the instructions for building every aspect of every cell. So uh, within the cell, DNA is housed in the nucleus of the cell. Um, it is, uh, and then it goes through several processes to create protein. So it is first what's called transcribed into RNA, and then RNA is is done what's called translated into protein. So it's basically different machinery within the cell reading this map for how to for from the DNA for how to make a protein. But then we have uh, many different mechanisms within the cell for controlling which DNA is getting turned into a protein, which map we're reading to, to make a protein. Um, and this is called an epigenetic control. So it is a outside of the genes, but it, what it is doing is it's controlling which genes are basically turned on or turned off. And where our understanding in science, um, where that understanding started was with the identification of stem cells. So uh, a stem cell is a cell that can become many different types of cells. So you can think about, you know, very simplistically, we have skin cells, right? You have the cells that make up your liver. You have the cells that make up your lung. You have the cells that make up your heart, the cells that make up your blood vessels. And ev these cells are all highly specialized. They um, have different shapes. They have uh, different properties. Their membranes have different properties. They have different types of proteins in them. They have different types of proteins in their membranes. They communicate differently. So I have different receptors. And all of that comes from control of which genes are turned on or turned off. And what a stem cell can do is by... Uh, is it it can become any one of those cells. So a stem cell is like the original cell with our original map. And then if you turn genes on or off, then that cell is going to start dividing down, you know, it's sort of maturing into one of these highly specialized cells that we have, like a you know, blood vessel endothelial cell or a lung epithelial cell, right? These are all highly specialized cell types that can only then divide into more of that one cell type. So we know that we can turn genes on and off. There are many mechanisms that this can happen. And there are many mechanisms that are influenced by diet and lifestyle. So we know that, for example, um, how, much, uh, how much certain fatty acids are in your diet can impact what genes are turned on or turned off that affect how our bodies store fat. We know that if there's a lot of sugar in your diet, that can turn on or off genes that affect how we store fat. Um, there's a lot of very specific genes that have been identified, especially ones that have roles in metabolism, um, that we know are sensitive to things like stress or how much sleep we're getting. So there's actually a tremendous amount of input from the environment that we're in that controls what genes are turned off in different cells. And, um, and so 
what epigenetics is, separate from genetics, genetics is your DNA. That's what you've inherited. Your epigenetics is sort of like saying what genes are turned on. So what genes are actually being made into proteins? And that helps us differentiate between something called genotype. So that is basically a way of, you know, your entire DNA map and what's called phenotype, which is really how you look. So, um, and how you look is based on what proteins are actually being made from what DNA maps. So that's the differentiation between genetics and epigenetics. So genetics is the DNA that you've inherited from your parents and epigenetics are which genes are turned on or turned off, which affects the end product of you know, proteins being made, um, which then affects how a cell performs, how cells signal with each other, how, um, how cells communicate completely, you know, not just with their neighbors, but with, you know, how your brain communicates with your toes. So all of that is controlled epigenetically. Um, there are certain genes that are very resilient to epigenetic factors. So for example, your eye, cha- eye color is not going to change based on your diet um, or based on how much sleep you got. Um, and there are other genes that are very susceptible to being turned on or turned off. So genes that control metabolism, genes that control hormone production, those have lots and lots of different ways that they can be turned off and turned on. And there's a lot of dynamic control and there's a lot of different inputs. So what was really fascinating, um, new science discovered just really, really identified it in the last decade was that Genetics are inheritable, but so are epigenetics. So we know that the way that our um, you know cells divide in and then recombine to form an embryo, that we are getting half of our DNA from the mother and half of our DNA from the father, and that is inherited. That's our inherited genome. That's our genetic makeup that we get from our parents. But we also inherit. Um, some signals that are based on our parents' environment and even our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents' environments that are controlling which genes are turned off and turned on. And so we actually know that there's something like two to 4,000 different genes that are um, affected, that have inheritable epigenetics. So how... Our parents' diet and lifestyle was affecting how those genes turned on or turned off will influence how those genes are turned on or turned off in us. Um, That doesn't mean we can't override that with our own changes in diet and lifestyle, but it's interesting because it's showing, for example, why there can be predispositions to obesity within a household. Um, And it has to do with the effect of diet from our parents and our grandparents. And it's compounded when we learn um, bad diet decisions growing up in our families. So then you have this, you know, I have this genetic control that's inherited from my parents' bad diet from them. And then I'm compounding and making that even worse by my bad diet. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing the current rise in in childhood obesity. So we're Seeing, you know, we've basically magnified um, the genetic predisposition over generations through epigenetics. And so it's a really interesting phenomenon. It's one in which we understand only the very, very tip of the iceberg. Most 
most of the genes that are being turned off and turned on and how they're being affected by diet and lifestyle and what that actually does and how they interact with, you know, other genes and, you know, what happens to the, to those proteins when those genes are turned on or turned off. We understand a very, very small percentage of it. We understand it really in very sort of isolated specific conditions. Um, but it's something that is a field of science that's really exploding right now. And I think very excitingly, because when you start um, t- talking about epigenetics, you start talking about things like nutrigenet- uh, nutrigenetics, so how nutrition affects genetics. So it's really an epigenetic control, but it's how, where does nutrition, where does a person's diet influence what genes are turned on or turned off? And that's becoming a whole new field of science. And uh, similarly, nutriproteomics. So how does nutrition affect what proteins are being produced from that DNA map? So again, it really ties into epigenetics, but it's a very fascinating new scientific field that I think is going to lead to tremendous advances in how we define an optimal human diet. So um, so it's really, really fascinating, but I think it's important to keep in mind, especially as we get into the questions today, it's really important to keep in mind that there are far more unknowns than knowns. Um, you know, we understand the basic mechanics, so we understand, you know, we can sequence DNA, we can sequence RNA, uh, we can sequence proteins, um, we understand how... DNA is transcribed into RNA, how RNA is translated into protein. We understand what parts of the cell that's happening in. Uh, we understand the molecular details of, you know, things like histones, right? Things that are, you know, these examples of mechanisms that are turning genes on and off. Um, but there's these other links, like what your vitamin D status is, where then we we know that there's about 300 genes that are affected by vitamin D. Um, but exactly how and when, at what level, and with what other factors, it starts to become a lot, uh, the lines start to become a lot blurrier in terms of what we know. But uh, it's very, very cool. I think the whole thing um, is really cool. I remember a podcast a while ago, um, you mentioned um, that from a genetics perspective, it took, I think you said, three generations for the biological changes to take place um, from what one generation might do um, passed down in the womb from mothers. So, you know, where, for example, you and I might go to these measures, and even if we'd had paleo pregnancies, we wouldn't have seen that genetic implementation for, you know, three potentially three generations later for improvements to be made. For example, I think we were specifically talking about gut biome at the time, right? So now there's also the the factors of epigenetics, which is what we're hoping to improve and change with our current lifestyles in addition to kind of the genetic down the line. So, the, I mean, just the whole thing and how everything plays out and um, where science is just kind of booming in this area right now and what, you know, what our children's children might know and what improvements might be made in terms of, you know, health advances and stuff like that from what we learn about genetics and epigenetics and then can apply and improve upon going forward, which to me as a person who came to paleo because of how interested I was into the connection of um, the anthropological viewpoint of evolution on the biology of the human body and how 
you know, we haven't, our bodies haven't evolved as quickly as the um, advances that we've made around us. It is huge in the context of what I'm interested in, how I choose to live my life. So neato, is that a thing that you say? Neato Neato? is definitely, I say it today. Um, Yeah. So I think that, you know, we know that there, the, the trans generational effects or the of heritable genetics so epigenetic heritable epigenetics can go some people are now saying as much as five generations but it's um it's like watered down with each generation so you're getting the biggest changes from your parents but then you're getting some influence from your grandparents and then a little bit less influence from your great-grandparents so i think when we were talking about this before you know one of the things that i was saying is I look at, um, you know, I, I found paleo, um, in my mid thirties and I had struggled with health for two decades prior to that. And, you know, I think it's easy to kind of say, I wish I had found this earlier, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I was trying to frame this a little bit more positively and say, to me, this, the, this is a long game. So I'm working on my own health, but I'm also at the same time teaching different diet and lifestyle concepts to my kids to impact their epigenomes, um, which can then be inherited by their kids and then inherited by their kids' kids. And I see this as as being, um, you know, sort of turning the tide of public health as being a multi-generational um, uh a problem. And, you know, we didn't get unhealthy in a decade. We got unhealthy in, you know, really unhealthy in, if, you know, five to six decades, um, seven decades, maybe. So I think that um, looking at that in terms of, you know, that's generations, um, you know, it's it's going to take generations to to fix completely. That doesn't mean that we can't make huge changes in our own individual lives now with diet and lifestyle. And we're seeing that all over the paleo community. Um, but it does mean that when we're talking about the, the broader scope of chronic disease incidents and, and, and public health, that part of it is spreading this message, but the other part of it is sticking to these priorities and teaching these priorities to our kids and our grandkids and our great grandkids so that we can, um, change public health education um, and also motivate healthier decisions through those generations to really, you know, we could eradicate obesity. We could eradicate type 2 diabetes. These are not diseases that we need to have in our society, Um, but it's not going to be something that we do in five years or 10 years. It's going to be something that takes takes babies is what it's going to take. And I've already had mine. I'm done so done yeah that's a place where we (laughs) we both have have something in common (laughs) um okay questions questions and answers where we answer questions submitted by you through the contact form on our websites paleomom.com and paleoparents.com help me obi-wan kenobi you're my only hope so our first question is from Emma, and I think I've already answered about half of it, but I'm going to read out her question anyways. 
I have a more sciencey question for Sarah. I only recently learned about epigenetics from seeing a couple TED Talks, and I'm very intrigued. Genetic predisposition is relevant for a lot of people coping with chronic diseases, and I think this topic presents a new and motivating way of looking at one's condition. How exactly does gene expression work? Did my grandparents' diets and lifestyle really help shape who I am? What about my great-grandparents? Do genes really turn on and off? How is this possible? And if I were to say, marry a lifelong smoker, how much of an impact would this genetic tag have on our offspring? Do you want me to jump into the answer? I want to know the answer to this question. So um, I really, the reason why I wanted to read out this whole question is because I kind of wanted to take a minute to differentiate between a genetic predisposition to chronic illness and an epigenetic predisposition predisposition to chronic illness, because there are both. So there are certain genes and ones that are not um, as affected by diet and lifestyle factors that can greatly predispose us to things like autoimmune disease or things like cardiovascular disease. So two really good examples of that in the case of autoimmune disease is um, what's called the HLA gene. It stands for human leukocyte antigen. And it it's the map for the, a protein that is kind of like the flagpole on a white blood cell. So when the white blood cell eats something, it takes a piece of that thing and turns it into a flag and raises up this flagpole. And then it shows the rest of, immune, of the immune system what it found. So what the human leukocyte antigen gene is, it's the, it's the flagpole. It's the little bit that sticks out of the membrane. That, that white blood cell, when it find something that shouldn't be in the human body, we'll put a little bit of it at the top of this pole and say, hey, everyone, I just found this thing and I think it might be bad. So that's a really important protein for the entire functioning of the adaptive immune system, the part of the immune system that recognizes a specific threat, develops immunity against that specific threat. So we're fighting off that flu virus and remembers that flu virus. So the next time we're exposed to that particular flu, we don't get it again. And that's why, for example, we only get chickenpox once. Um, so it's this, it's the adaptive immune system that remembers that infection and then stops us from, from getting it again. The reason why we get the flu every year is because the flu mutates. So it's actually a different flu virus every single time that you get it. Um, if you got exposed to the same flu virus that you had three years ago, you would not get it again. And you would never even know that you were exposed to it. So if there's uh, a slight change in how that flagpole is functioning, then it can completely change how the immune system is responding to a specific threat. And we know that there's a couple of different um, genetic variants of this particular gene. So a genetic variant is where there's just a, you know, a few, a few molecules different is really all we're talking about. Um, so we know that there's a few genetic or a few variants of this gene that have much higher risk of autoimmune disease. So for example, HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8 are so strongly associated with celiac disease that people with celiac have about a 90% chance of having one of those two HLA variants. Um, B27 is another HLA variant that's very common in autoimmune disease and um, dramatically increases the predisposition for the entire rheumatic family of diseases. So that includes things like rheumatoid arthritis, but also ankylosing spondylitis. So um, I find, you know, I find knowing that fascinating. Um, it's also important to understand that there's a lot more genes 
like that that have some you know very specific roles within the immune system and we can have a collection of genes that will increase our likelihood of developing autoimmune disease um but it's still only about a third of the risk factor for autoimmune disease so we know that um we know that there's multiple genes we don't know them all um hla is one of them and it basically predisposes us to having an overactive immune system when diet and lifestyle aren't dialed in. So then in the case of something like cardiovascular disease, there's APOE. And APOE is, um, it stands for, uh, uh, I'm going to trip over this first, apolipoprotein E. And it's, um, there's four different variants that are known uh, to, that, for, that humans can have. And what's really fascinating is um, APOE4 variants, so they're called 1, 2, 3, and 4. We know that if you have a copy of the APOE4 uh, gene, that you are actually um, much more likely to have high cholesterol with a high-fat diet and have cardiovascular disease as a result of that high cholesterol. So we know, for example, that APOE4 people do much better on a low-fat diet in terms of cardiovascular disease risk. And um, when we had all these studies, you know, showing that, you know, fat was, um, you know, the, the, the culprit behind the rise in cardiovascular disease, you know, that was on a population scale, that's been thoroughly debunked. But there's this group of people, APOE4 carriers, in which a low-fat diet is actually highly recommended. So we know, for example, that um, familial hypercholesteremia, it goes along with APOE4. Um, so it's a uh, annoying gene to have. Very easy, you know, these are things that are very easy to test with either something like uh, a 23andMe or a, a functional medicine specialist can order a blood test that can just test for just these genes and give you more information. Um, they're I always like, I think information is fantastic. I think that um, the more we know about our genetic predisposition, um, the more informed decisions that we can make. So that's a genetic, that's inherited, and it goes back to the genome, right? So that's DNA, that's what we've got. Then there's the epigenetic controls. So this is, for example, you know, turning off and on, right? Proteins like PPAR gamma, which can affect how um, how inflammatory um, or the inflammatory response to fats, for example. So, um, so we've got this whole separate set of genes that are turned on and turned off based on diet and lifestyle, exposure to toxins, hormone environments, things like that, um, stress, right, sleep, um, infection. Uh, we've got this whole, uh, the microbiome, got this whole host of genes that are really, really sensitive to these environmental factors, and it is still inheritable. And I think, you know, I already mentioned that uh, it does matter what happened to our great, our great grandparents, and even our great great grandparents, and even our great 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 grandparents. Although the farther back you go, the more watered down the effect is. Um, but if um, if Emma was to marry a lifelong smoker, there would be a genetic impact on their kids. Um, and we know that epigenetics are passed through both 
mothers and fathers. Um, there's actually some really interesting work done just in the last, last year um, showing just to what huge magnitude um, epigenetic um, factors are inherited from our fathers. So a lot of the original work focused on the maternal link, um, but we now know that the paternal link is just as strong. So, um, so that is, I think, you know, something to know uh, that is information. Um, you know, I, I still feel like it makes more difference what our choices are now and how we're moving forward and what we're teaching our kids. Um, and, you know, as, as somebody who has always viewed myself as genetically weak, this is true. Um, you know, I, I, I try to think about how much um, information can make up for genetics, right? Because we know that, you know, it, with the exception of genetic diseases like sickle cell anemia, we're talking about uh, risk rather than uh, fate. And so I think it's really important to understand the risk, but then it's really important to feel empowered to make the better choices to mitigate that risk. I am. Um, it's all really fascinating to me as well because my mom's adopted. So um, it's just, it's a lot to think. You don't know what you don't know, right? And so for, um, on one side of my family, I know everything and I, you know, it's a blessing and a curse to know, you know, what you have that runs in your family and what's coming at you. Um, and then on the other side, you know, my mom and I are literally watching our health unfold and kind of putting pieces of the puzzle together um, as it happens. So I certainly hope that no one would make a decision about who they might want to fall in love with, marry, and make babies with based on what they may have done, let's say, in college. Um, but <laughs> it it does, it, like you're saying, it you know, it exists. It's a thing. But also... You know, I really love Matt, even though he's imperfect and he loves me, even though we're imperfect and we have imperfect children and it's just fine. Um, I think imperfection is amazing. Nature is imperfect. But also, I forget what you said about being in a disadvantaged gene pool. What did you say? Is, um, I have always viewed myself as genetically weak. Yeah, I'm with you there. <laughs> no, I before even before even finding paleo um you know i used to basically say i could look back over the gener my you know a couple of generations at my relatives who would all have been dead without modern medicine and basically like a i would never have existed and i even before paleo I sort of said you know like this is not natural selection anymore thanks to modern medicine this is you know something something being passed on that um, might not of in a survival of the fittest type world. And here I am and I'm thankful for it. Um, but you know, I had, would basically say, you know, the number of times that I have, um, had life-saving medical intervention from steroid treatments to antibiotics, um, to, uh, to, to, uh, you know, other types of, of, uh, intervention, it, um, <laughs> really defies, defies the laws of nature. But, you know, I basically used to say, like, I'd be dead a hundred times if it wasn't for modern medicine. And I just, you know, before having 
a really solid idea of how my day-to-day choices were actually impacting my health and before having a really solid idea of the difference between nutrition and diet and the difference between how heavy I was and health. Um, these were all things that were really important life lessons for me to learn in my early or mid thirties, I guess. Um, and, and part of my paleo journey. But before that, um, you know, I basically used to just feel very thankful that modern medicine existed and, you know, credit my life to it. And, um, I'm glad that I have come to a place in my own personal journey where I can be very hyper aware of how every choice that I make impacts my health and know that, um, you know, I don't need medication, you know, as symptom management to keep me going through the day. Like that's not something that's something that I needed through my twenties and early thirties. That's not something that I have in my life now. Um, and I've been able to trade, um, you know, by, by focusing on diet and lifestyle, I've been able to go off of those medications and um, and still feel even better than I did when those medications were keeping me going. So um, it's it's been a tremendous journey for me. And I, I don't know. I, I can't wrap my head around thinking of myself as <laughs> not genetically disadvantaged, um, but I. I feel much more empowered to be able to be healthy despite my genetics, as opposed to feeling like I just could blame my genetics. And that was, you know, I was doomed to have the litany of health conditions that I have. You know, now I don't feel that way. I don't feel like my genes um, determine my health fate. You fist bumping in the air for me right there. Yeah, obviously. I was also waiting for you to, like, answer another question. All right, fine. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm with you. I don't know, you know, like. Ah, oh, that was like a drop the mic moment right there. Was you it? Drop. You're so, pu- you're so like, spunky tonight that it just felt like. No, you know what? You haven't had a podcast with normal energetic Sarah in a while. This is how all a podcast used to be. And then I got sick. And then I got sicker, and then I got more sick. I'm just saying, energy is amazing, and I missed it. I didn't know it was gone, but now I love it, and it's fantastic. Let's do one more question. So this question is from Jessica, and Jessica says, I've been paleo for the past four months or so, and I'm in the process of changing my family over to a paleo diet. I have not heard... I had not heard of the autoimmune protocol prior to listening to your podcast. This interests me because there is a long history of autoimmune disease in my family on my mother's side. My mom has primary biliary sclerosis, Sjogren's syndrome, arthritis, and a few others. My grandmother had autoimmune eosinophilic pneumonia. Her mother died of gallbladder cancer and likely had undiagnosed um, primary biliary sclerosis. Other aunts and second cousins have autoimmune diseases as well, and the onset tends to occur during or after menopause. I know there's probably some sort of genetic predisposition to having an autoimmune disorder with environmental factors also in play. I am concerned about getting an autoimmune disorder as that seems to be the trend for women in my family. My question is, if there is a reason for me to go on the autoimmune protocol in order to prevent acquiring one, or if a broader paleo diet would be sufficient. I'm 32 years old and had a very poor, sad diet and was essentially sedentary prior to joining CrossFit and finding paleo last summer. 
I'm still new to paleo and I'm struggling with eliminating dairy and sugar from my diet. I imagine it is probably best to get the basics down before trying to further restrict my diet, but I am trying to get an idea of what trajectory I need to be on and what my long-term goals are. Also, would I benefit from having inflammatory markers monitored by my healthcare provider? What labs should I have drawn and how would I and my practitioner use that information? I appreciate any recommendations and suggestions you have. I'm going to, I'm going to say what I would do, which is not necessarily the right advice. So I'll be bad cop and you can be good cop or vice versa. Let me see what you say and then we'll determine what cop you are. (laughs) So if I was in Jessica's shoes, I would just try to be aware of what the autoimmune um, trigger foods, like the highly inflammatory foods are. And I would either avoid or limit them. But I'm going to be straight up honest, Jessica. It is hard enough to do this when I physically hurt after consuming, for example, a nightshade. Immediately upon consumption of a nightshade, my face breaks out, I'm foggy, and my joints hurt. And it usually takes anywhere from four to ten days for me to recover from an exposure depending on what I consumed and the quantity of it. So um, I would say, given that even though I'm aware of all of those things, and I still sometimes choose to consume things that I know won't make me feel my best, I think it would be unreasonable to expect that you are going to have the desire to stay strict autoimmune protocol based off of a genetic disposition. I think if you obviously start having symptoms or something like that, it would motivate, for example, me to then implement those changes. But um, I think I would probably take the approach of just being aware of what those anti-inflammatory, of what those inflammatory foods are, being aware of what the anti-inflammatory foods are and consuming as much of those healing foods that we talk about all the time to help prevent that from happening in your body. But I would not feel bad about eating a sliced tomato with sea salt on it and fresh basil in the summertime if you're not having a response to it. I just wouldn't make that habit if you know that you um, have a long history of autoimmune disease in your family. You were totally good cop. Okay. I don't know that what was... that means. Um, no, you know what? I actually agree with you, Stacey. I think you said all that answer expecting me to disagree. Um, well, I mean, but... like, I expected you to be like, don't eat those things. <laughs> no, actually. So I, I, um, I don't believe that the full autoimmune protocol is necessary as a prophylactic. Um, That being said, I think it's very important to understand what foods are emphasized on the autoimmune protocol and what foods are restricted on the autoimmune protocol and to be vigilant. So when you're not feeling well, that's a good time to like, wait, is it tomatoes? You know, do I have a nightshade sensitivity? Do I have a problem with eggs? Um, But I think that you know, the autoimmune protocol in many ways is designed to um, hone in on the problematic foods as efficiently as possible. It's an elimination diet and it it's just a little bit more sophisticated in how it eliminates 
foods based on scientific literature compared to right an elimination diet for allergies that an allergist might put you through. Um, so it's it's still designed to be an elimination phase and then a reintroduction and an experimentation and figuring out what you know what works well for your individual body. But I think it's really important to emphasize the key concepts behind the autoimmune protocol and why they work. So one of the major concepts is nutrient density, and that's because the immune system is such a nutrient hog and it uses nutrients the most in its regulatory functions. So in its aspects of controlling the immune system, shutting it down when the job is done. So a, a high nutrient density focus is a really, really important aspect of any anti-inflammatory diet because we need that we need those nutrients just for our immune systems to be able to work properly. Um, and some of the key ones are zinc. So being aware of um, zinc sources, you know, the best food sources are um, shellfish. Um, maybe having vitamin D tested to make sure your vitamin D is in a good range, probably, you know, between 50 and 70. Um, a lot of doctors will be happy if it's 31, but 31 is actually really too low. Um, vitamin A, so making sure that you have animal form of vitamin A in your diet. So the best, of course, is liver, but all organ meats and all seafood has vitamin A. Um, a huge range of plant phytochemicals, so getting lots of vegetables. That also has tons of great vitamins and minerals that the immune system needs and every other system in the human body. And making sure that you're getting enough fiber to support a healthy gut microbiome. And again, diversity of vegetables and some fruit. Um, so taking in more of the nutrient density focus rather than the elimination focus, I also think that's a more positive way just to think about diet. So rather think about think about what we eat rather than what we're eliminating. Um, but I think that taking standard paleo and adding that nutrient focus is a wonderful way to achieve health, um, especially when you're starting at, at a healthy point. And then don't ignore the lifestyle stuff. So Jessica's doing CrossFit, which is awesome. High five. Hope you're doing the open right now. That's I'm high fiving, but you can't tell because it's audio. But I just want to point out that the geek level on that entire moment right there was like only a 9.5. Like you went into full virtually high fiving someone on a tangent about science. Yes. That's me. But you just you just described my I just sum, I just summed you up your entire life that's, right there. That's right there. That is Sarah <laughs> Ballantyne. That's the way I roll. So, um, yes, the CrossFit tangent from the nutrition science. That's that's awesome. So, um, you know, I I love I love CrossFit. I think it's really important to have good coaches who can help you scale appropriately. And I think it's really important to take rest days and to listen to your body and not overtrain. Um, but as long as you're being conscientious about those things, I think CrossFit is awesome. Um, and I, I think that it absolutely can be compatible with uh, autoimmune disease. Um, but again, it's very individual. It depends on where you're coming from. It depends on how hard you're pushing yourself. It depends on scaling options. It depends on your coaches. It depends on rest days, recovery days. It depends on sleep. It depends on stress management. It depends on nutrient density. There's a lot of inputs there into how our bodies respond to the activities that we choose. Um, sleep is profoundly important. I mean, I'm going to be talking about the link between sleep and autoimmune disease at the NTA conference. Um, and I will be putting together a, a blog post that summarizes a lot of that research. Um, but you know, having um, sleep problems increases our risk of autoimmune disease by about 
that's across the entire population that's not looking at people who already have a family history. Um, so if you have a family history, you know, you can pretty much assume that 30% risk factor that's genetic is locked in. Um, so it means that, you know, it's requires even more focus on that 70% that is diet and lifestyle. So sleep is profoundly important. Um, managing stress is profoundly important, you know, which means the best thing you can do to manage stress is get enough sleep. Um, and then the other amazing things that manage stress is having, um, connection with loved ones and, uh, having some fun. So those are amazing things. Um, and, uh, I think that often within the paleo community, we get very like diet and exercise focused. And I think we can easily ignore some of the other really major inputs to health. Um, so being aware of those and being aware that those really are part of the autoimmune protocol. Um, so the autoimmune protocol is more than just food. It also incorporates those lifestyle factors and working on those. And also understanding that there is a whole class of autoimmune diseases that do tend to um, occur with hormone changes. And so sometimes it's menopause, sometimes it's puberty, sometimes it's pregnancy and lactation. Um, so having a healthcare provider who can actually maybe measure what your hormones are doing um, and be, um, be proactive there, being proactive in terms of understanding what your adrenal glands are doing. These are all things that are going to input into your immune system. And especially over the next what, 15 to 20 years, um, you know, being, you know, really aware of those things is going to be helpful. Having inflammatory markers monitored by healthcare provider is definitely useful information. Um, you know, I think the classic would be looking at C-reactive protein and ferritin levels. Um, there's other markers as well that a functional medicine specialist might look at. Um, you know, having, having that done once a year should be fine. Um, keeping an eye on thyroid function, always a good idea. Um, there are, you know, a functional medicine or integrative medicine practitioner might do what's called a, or an endocrinologist. I mean, there are a lot of doctors who would order what's called an autoimmune panel, and that would include things like um, antibodies against thyroid, antibodies against tissue transglutaminase, which can um, indicate celiac disease, um, anti-nuclear antibodies, which is a sort of general marker of autoimmune disease. But it's important to know that that you can get all negative test results, and that doesn't actually mean that you don't have an autoimmune disease. We can't actually test for all autoimmune diseases, and even things like anti-nuclear antibodies are only positive about half the time. So, um, so you know, having that open conversation with your healthcare provider, you know, having a look at exactly what diseases are running in your family, so that you can know exactly which ones that you want to monitor for. Just because those are the ones that are in your family, that doesn't mean that's what you're going to get, but there is a slightly higher likelihood. Um, so I think always having that conversation open is a really good idea. But I, the best thing is just monitor how you feel. And if you're feeling tired, achy, or moody, or you have brain fog, or you have you know, these symptoms, joint aches, right? These symptoms that just tend to go with so many different autoimmune diseases, then it's time to start digging deeper and time to start really evaluating um, your diet and lifestyle choices and, and see where you can, um, optimize. Was I bad cop? Was that, does that make me bad cop? No, or? you were just science cop. Science cop. It's a new thing. And Matt needs to find some kind of like, well, science. 
Certainly what he can do is pull in some references from my boy's favorite television show, Axe Cop. One day at the scene of the fire, the cop found the perfect axe. That was the day he became Axe Cop! Who, you know, um, moonlights never... with Flute Cop. <laughs> so I have never Science Cop can show. just join. It's, you know, it's a boy show. Com- so, okay, complete tangent. Um, it's like written by a kid works with, I think his uncle or older brother to actually put the book together. It's like a seven year old that started them. I think he's like nine now or something, but it is like became crazy popular for comic book. And then I think it was Fox network. Some network picked up two seasons of this cartoon that is so ridiculous and nonsensical it's just hilarious because it's like a seven-year-old's imagination played out on paper flute cop axe cop this is a thing so you can join their team a science cop all right it's done it's done (laughs) and i love the story behind it so it's done even more (laughs) some well we haven't had you fully geek out for a while so about them apples. So I'm, I'm, I'm good for a while, right? I'm done for a little while. A little so, bit. I think so. Yeah. We'll, t- we'll tackle something lighter next week. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah. Um, so, again, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. You'd still have to hug me. Electronically. Funny. <laughs> Just end on a bar. That doesn't even make sense. I just no. don't even know what happened. Really doesn't. And Matt is next to me dancing and snapping. I don't know if you can hear that, but I can. You guys are going nuts. Sarah's it's super strange. energetic too. It's freaky. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.